Welcome! Obviously. We know. Um, so this week we are going to discuss uh, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. And then we're going to also have our normal chatty section. At the end we talk about things that we've been looking forward to. Yeah, so word of warning, we're going to spoil the end of all the book, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. Mm, so if you haven't read it and want to read it and don't want any spoilers i would advise maybe skipping that yeah. section and you can use our timestamps uh, which are listed in the description of the podcast to move about the episode as you please yeah so let's get into it helena what have you been enjoying in pop culture this week well what i want to talk about which has just happened in the last couple of days i feel like i always come across these as it's happening the met gala which is always a great fashion evening because obviously they have these crazy themes and last year it was like or two years ago it was like technology in the age of fashion yeah all great fine robots but this year oh my lord it was like heavenly bodies which already sounds like a great title catholicism and its impact on fashion and catholicism obviously has been a major world religion and a major institutionalized religion as well across the western world for literally years you know it's more than centuries Mm. and also it's i think it has genuinely when i saw this as a theme i was like oh of course, like it spawned lots of iconic looks. Like it's very gilded, red, gold, silver, heaven, hell, crosses, all this kind of stuff. So some iconic looks emerged at the Met Gala this year, and I'm just like shaken to my core. I was on Twitter all day yesterday, just like scrolling through, being like, yes, my favourite of all was Blake Lively, who looked amazing. She had this this like gilded gold bodice that was off the shoulder, and this killer like carpet tapestry red embroidered skirt that was like three thousand feet long and she had like um like a head golden like like a crown almost like a halo yeah she looked like an actual actual goddess like hellenistic a little bit but it's it's that that wine like blood wine color and all the gold and oh man it was like a religious experience looking at her yeah no she did she did look amazing and i think you know she was an example of somebody who like fully went for it um others that i really enjoyed i so i also spent a lot of time like observing all these looks um I loved Amanda Seafood. She was wearing like a yellow, like bright yellow gown, sure. um, which was really striking. Um, I also loved Lena Waithe, who's, um, she's in um, Aziz Ansari's show. Oh, sure. Um, Master, of, Master of None, yeah. And she was wearing this cape. Uh, uh, so she's like very much like an LGBT oh, activist. Oh, that one. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, that was really cool. There was a lot of like statement, statement Political pieces. Political statement ones um, as well. As well yeah. yeah. I enjoyed Greta Gerwig, who somebody said she looked like she was Maria before she meets the children. Like, she was basically kind of dressed as a nun. Oh, I um, did see that, yeah. yeah. I also really liked um, Gigi Hadid, who came as a stained glass window. Mm. And she, I loved it. And also, um, Janelle Monae, who oh, just yeah. put out a new album, again, LGBTQ icon. And she basically had this, like, you know the halos, the gilded halos they have around. No one else did this apart from her. Yeah. The gilded halos they have around a lot of, like, religious characters in icons and that kind of thing and it was perfect like it was like a hat with this beautiful golden bottom that was like just the right color gold that looked like it had been painted on and i was like and i think my favorite ones are the ones where i got the theme kind of immediately like mm. rihanna came dressed as the actual pope and it was like yes, i did rihanna. see somebody saying like do you think that rihanna was like guys i am being the pope like no one else can be i feel like rihanna but rihanna's like the queen of the Met gala like i saw someone who was basically being like so it's next year is the theme going to be Rihanna fashion through the ages? Because, like, she always basically is, like... There was one year where she wore that dress that was, like, literally, like, as big as the steps and oh, that yeah. kind of thing. Like, she yeah. is known for it. Well, it looked great, so, yeah. We did. There were so many... There was, there was so many looks. I mean, everyone... A lot of people killed it. Some people did not. No, so I'm really confused by, like, why you would literally just wear, like, a boring... Like, John Boyega very... just wore, like, a normal tux. Yeah, like, like, a nice tux or just, a you know, a simple dress. Mm. Like, which on any other occasion would look great. But, like, why would you not kind of yeah. go for it? I don't really know why you wouldn't go for yeah, it. Yeah, I saw a thing that was, like, the, you know... I mean, I think nearly every single woman who I saw had some kind of, like, thought put into their gown. Because, of course, they would, like, you know, the designers. But then some men just turned up in, like... And it wasn't just John Wade, it was plenty of them. Just turned up in, like, literally, like, a tux. Yeah, I mean... I suppose it might be a little harder for men. They have Chadwick Boseman, who was like... Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I suppose women can kind of accessorise. Like, I saw Mm. quite a lot of women where, like, their dresses were fairly, 
fairly normal but then they had like an interesting headpiece or like really interesting makeup yeah and I guess for guys perhaps that could be a little more limited but I know what you mean like Chadwick Boseman had like an amazing outfit um Jared Leto like Jared Leto looked like I I didn't come up with this joke but somebody else noticed it he looked a that he didn't know he did he just happened to turn up there wearing his normal outfit yeah (laughs) and b he looked like King John the lion from Disney's Robin Hood the fox version which was great but him and Lana Del Rey had a look going on didn't they didn't they so together yeah yeah that was quite um I think uh, yeah it was anything where uh there had clearly been there was clearly like an image behind it actually there was a, a twitter account that i started following after the metal and i now can't i think it's called tabloid tabloid art history yeah i'm pretty sure that's what it's called oh. and it basically will take in ordinarily it just takes a picture of like a celebrity and compares it to a medieval painting or yeah. a renaissance painting oh, classic, like um but of course this account was having a total field day after yeah. the metal because there were so many examples of people having been like directly inspired by history because that's where Catholicism I think really shines yeah so I would totally recommend that I'll tweet it from our Twitter account um there were some really cool examples of yeah Ariana Grande was the Sistine Chapel wall not the ceiling my yeah. friend was very, my friend who was tweeting about this was very specific. I also really loved um, Cara Delevingne, who looked like a medieval torture device because she had all these like it was all sheer with like um so sheer panelling with like black lines and she had like a black veil which was made of little stars and it was all yeah. very like chains and bondage kind of inspired which I think also harks to the Catholic, you know, Catholics and the Roman Inquisition the Spanish, Spanish Inquisition yeah. kind of thing um, which is obviously like a, a side of Catholicism that's equally like I think as aesthetic and she looked very much like Oh, she looked really cool as well. I loved it. I had a great time watching all the all the fashions. Yeah, I suppose it was also it was a very specific theme because sometimes the themes have been a bit more, a bit vaguer. Yeah, like technology is like okay. yeah, which is kind of like harder to interpret. Whereas mm. I think this was a very specific theme. Yeah, which has a great aesthetic around it. Boom! Mm. And I have to mention before we move on, um, Zendaya. Oh yeah, literally killed it. Like oh yeah, it was her. She was I amazing. Think she won it. Blake Lively came close, but I think Zendaya won it because I've seen her picture everywhere and people were comparing her to Joan of Arc and they were like, give her a sword! And they were just like, yes. I, yeah. I thought her chainmail outfit was fab. Absolutely yeah, fab. I agree because it was also um, one of the more like out there, in, yeah. in quotation marks, uh, choices in that she was like fully embracing she was basically dressed as a character. Yeah. She wasn't being like herself. Her and match. I think that's probably like the key to a really good because essentially it's fancy dress you know the key to a really good like a fancy dress fashion statement is actually to play a character yeah. you're not just you wearing like a nice dress with like happening to wear like a crucifix necklace or something or like a nice color it's that you actually have to like think about it in like a more in like an intellectual way to actually win yeah which did win yeah. I love Rihanna, actually. Well, Rihanna, you are right. Rihanna was just like, Rihanna sent like a group email. Yeah. Group Guys, I'm the, I'm the Pope. I'm the Pope. Don't fight me. Don't at me. Um, anyway, I saw a really funny tweet by Piers Morgan that was like, at the, literally, he, he literally, I saw the this, yeah. He was just like, the are you realizing that like this is like really like insulting to the Vatican? And somebody was like, how could you be so ballsy as to act the Pope about Catholicism? <laughs> like, yeah, I was kind of bizarre. Uh, but the Met Gala for me, I think we should all get, is all about fun and fashion. And that's all we can take from it. Yeah, it's interesting how you're not allowed to see what goes on inside. So all the pictures yeah. are from like the stairs, well, yeah, and then that's it. You don't stairs, you it? don't get to see like see peeks of the inside. Like, I wonder what happens inside. They just got the outfits, put on their cocktail dresses, and I'm like, right here we go. I mean, some of the outfits are probably really difficult to maneuver in. Dorman literally had like a headdress that went round her. Oh, she head. definitely like kept that on though. You know she did. Nutter. Yeah, <laughs> she's so weird. But um, yeah, that's what I've been enjoying this week. Um. Like, oh, well, I think we should move swiftly on yeah, onto our first topic. We both enjoyed the yeah, Island, we did, we did, and we have uh, quite a lot to get through this week. We do this, so, week, so let's um... get into it. So, uh, probably in a first for the podcast, we've both read the same book in the same <laughs> week. Oh, oh wow! Is that be the first time? I think so. Yeah. Aside from like aside book, from book, book club, club books, yeah. we don't tend to talk about those because we talk our run our mouths off about them on our, our book club meetings. Yeah. So it kind of feels a bit redundant. When yeah, it feels it. like we've already covered it all. So, yeah. um, but this book, um, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, which is by Imogen Hermes Gower, she is a. She worked in a... She worked at the British Museum. Yeah, she did. Yeah. I'm, I'm confusing her with the one who worked in the Glasgow Library, which is a different book. <laughs> um, and she did a creative writing 
Court Masters degree, yeah. and this is her debut novel, and it's actually been shortlisted for several prizes, um, including the biggest one, which is obviously the Women's Prize for Fiction, formerly the Bailey's Women's Prize, but um, now it's just Women's Prize, because they've had some sponsorship changes mm. this year, there's my book knowledge mm. coming in, um, which is due to be announced in the next couple of weeks, I think, actually. So, it, you know, essentially, when... Francesca picked it up and then I picked it up about a week later. Mm. Uh, we both picked up the hard cover copy, which they've done up very beautifully because it's um, vintage. It's Harvel Sacker, so vintages, yeah. kind of, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House's big debut of the year. They were really hamming it up, pushing it. It probably got onto prize lists somewhat because it's good, but otherwise because publishers know people on prize list juries and they kind of have chats and push these things forward. So it's a very um, popular book I would say yeah and uh, it was being billed as the next Essex Serpent oh um, and that's absolutely what they tried to take advantage of as yeah well. which came out last year right well, well year before yeah 2017 it was Waterstones book of the year I have read the Essex Serpent and I think it deserves all the yeah we, so we both read that as well and that was again hugely hugely popular I think almost everybody I know read it and a lot of people picked it up because the cover is so beautiful yeah. and I think the same will probably happen with The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock although it is a bigger book I'm not sure if that reminds people hefty. off it's yeah. quite hefty and that's so we both picked this up in January but only read it recently because it's one of those where it's so big that it's hard to transport around with you yeah and we both read in our commutes mostly I don't yeah. have to sit in bed and read um so it does help does help with a book then again I've been carrying on a giant hardback in my book for two weeks now so I found out that actually isn't a problem so much for me but it the home hat Miss Hancock was particularly big yeah it's, yeah it's also kind of long like not well not in both senses of the word I meant like the physical copy but um yeah it's, yeah. Quite, it's just a big book so it is. essentially we kind of been hyped to read it because it was a very very good looking book in one thing and you know the way publishers do it from an insider knowledge is that the better it looks the more more money's been poured into it the more the publisher wants to use the packaging to sell it and you know mm. we're aesthetic creatures so that's one thing and another thing is that it's got a setting it's in historic it's in the Georgian period yeah. so the 1700s it's kind of about this slightly like mystical uh, mermaid and um, sort of um, there's a lot of different like women in it there's a courtesan in it there's sort of like a rising merchant there's plenty of stuff that basically sounds like it would take tick mine and Francesca's boxes oh, yeah, for definitely. the kind of book we, we would like and it was billed as sort of literary as well so not so much commercial or dramatic it was actually like meant to be like a vaguely highbrow yeah and and so she worked at the, the British Museum and had a real interest in history and in crafting um a historical novel that did justice to the period and yeah in a way that like people like Georgette Heyer for example who's more of a uh, a romance drama novelist from like the early 1900 early early 20th century mm. she very much was known for crafting these amazing historical settings that were very accurate I think her yeah, I think she did the same thing. loads of research, and the way the characters talk is particularly. I mean, obviously, I wasn't there, so I can't say it was accurate, but it seems to me to be particularly accurate. Like you don't have mm-hmm. an example. People are the, the turns of phrases and the way yeah, people, absolutely. And, the speech yeah. is relayed. Um, just for an example, but also like the sort of hyper like level of detail that is in the book um, definitely speaks to. I think readers who perhaps enjoyed that side of a, things a slightly more in, in, not intellectual is the wrong word I don't want to make it sound like it's elitist more no. the fact that like the, the very intricate crafting of a historical world um, appeals to people like us who've studied history and then found some English and I've done a bit of English too and to be able to get so engrossed more academically in a historical setting kind of gives the book a, a reality to me that I really enjoy and like a higher yeah. level of escapism and too I think maybe it's like it wouldn't it's not that that would put off anybody else i think actually it would involve most people mm-hmm. i think it's that you or i if we were reading a book that didn't have that but was supposed to be set in a in a historical period would maybe find it harder to tune into that novel yeah you know, if we I mean, thought it was inaccurate or absolutely. just you know so let's let's get into it i feel like we both agree that this this historical setting in this book is like note perfect and absolutely yeah very really very engrossing and really you know makes you uh relate to and understand the intricacies of this period really in, well, in terms yeah. of the you know so the, so the main character i would say is not the mermaid or really mrs hancock the it's mermaid more, is barely in it no it is mrs hancock i mean we should we'll get to the mermaid <laughs> but um 
actually, I didn't really take in the title. I feel like I was very focused on the mermaid bit. I didn't really take in the second bit. But really, the main character, I would say, is Mr. Hancock. Jonah Hancock, who is a merchant who's kind of rising up the classes. Yeah, and um, he's involved in uh, shipping and also real estate. So yeah. the idea is that he is a man who's, whose family have always been involved in being a merchant and being in mercantile trade. Even um, he has family to support because his father's dead, he has no wife, um, he's a widower. So it's kind of, he's a very interesting character. He's not what you would expect. He's poor. No, he's not in at his all. 40s. He talks about feeling as if he just is like a a second fiddle in his own story because he there's a, a line where he kind of decides to take take a, a more active position for himself in his life after the discovery of the mermaid I, I quote here where he kind of says he's sick of kind of like everyone else moving around him and him just staying still so it's interesting you know you have this kind of man who's in his 40s in a Georgian period who kind of has a midlife crisis yeah and, and like, I completely agree that like he's not who you would think of as would be the hero of the story uh-huh. and actually and I'm sure that you thought this knowing what I know about your, oh, no. your case <laughs> um, like there were several points where I thought okay they're going to introduce like a young male lead at some point and it doesn't really happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that was just like my expectation of, mm-hmm. of novels, but also particularly historic novels, that you have this like dashing young man. And like Mr. Hancock is not that character. Um, yeah, I'm reading three, I've read three historical novels around this one in the past month, and they've all included a young, yeah. good looking man. And when man. a young, good looking man eventually appears in this novel, he is really, you know, up to no good, mm-hmm. and it's not. At all a focus. And a bit of a, yeah, he's a bit of a dandy. He's kind of a laughing stock of yeah, the story. Yeah, absolutely. He's your classic um, boy man who is, you know, his purse strings are controlled by his father. So he basically rebels against them to basically try... He rebels against his father's wishes by doing things than, you know, not really being independent himself. So you get the sense that... I got the sense, essentially, when I first started, like, oh, okay, so this is a classic story being told in its head. The author is actively trying to, like, do something a bit different. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And you have this courtesan, Angelica, who starts off the book um, kind of down on her luck a little bit because her protector has died. And she goes back to London with her, like, maid servant, and they fight a bit. And Angelica kind of goes, like, I want to be free. I don't want to, like do what anyone else tells me to do. I want to make enough money and live happily and not be married. And she talks to her friend, a former courtesan who's in getting married to an earl. Yeah. Being like, how can you think you're free when you're just getting married to somebody that you were more free before? And then her friend says, well, this is as free as I could ever be. Like you're, you've got so, so much instability. How can you be free? So there's an interesting discussion in the first, I say hundred pages about upending people's position in society and seeing characters you might not normally see. Which is, I really, really enjoyed. And then, for me, the book started to take a turn. And that's kind of where the problems began. And that this momentum, for me, kind of stalled. Kind of with the discovery of the mermaid. Because the mermaid comes in as a as a weird creature that changes Mr. Hancock's fortunes. Yeah, so his um, one of his captains of his ships has sold the ship in exchange for this, this mermaid-like creature. Which is not like a mermaid that we would uh, Ariel. <laughs> yeah, it's not like Ariel. It's it's like a sort of weird uh, you know, wiz wizard. Baby monkey thing tied on sewed onto a fish. Yeah. But you so can't tell. Mr. Hancock starts them um, displaying this mermaid and ends up kind of getting a lot of money and then um, becomes entangled with Angelica, the courtesan. Mm-hmm. And that, but it's interesting because it's, as we said, it's a long book and there are three volumes, I think. Yeah, in which Angelica goes through three different characters. Yeah, changes. but it's quite meandering. Like, the focus is is hard to kind of pin down. Yeah, because it's somewhat about John and Angelica, uh, John, Jonah, sorry, Jonah Hancock and Angelica. But then they don't really kind of hook up, not in that sense, well, I guess in both senses of the word. They until don't like really, part three. until part three. And then yeah. Angelica kind of goes through this weird transformation of like, finding this man who she kind of maybe falls passionately in love with one night at the, um, this is the young dandy yeah, guy, yeah. Um, at, you know, at a party, basically. And they have this romance in which they're both obsessed with each other and he spends frivolously. And then he, and she becomes a wholly different person, maybe transformed by love. I personally think it was just clumsy writing, but then Angelica goes down on her luck again. And that's when she and Mr. Hancock kind of start to actually come together and their story starts to intertwine. And around this, you have a story of like Angelica's, um, maid servant, a couple of the courtesans who work at Angelica's old job. Yeah, also which, another servant. So she used to, she used to work uh, for this woman, 
Um, Who's like a board, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so there's also kind of a focus on the other young girls who work for this woman still. But not that focus? Like no, a focus. It, it's kind of like occasional chapters will like diverge to their stories. Where one of them is like not questioning what's happening and the other one's being like, oh, maybe we're being used. And then she has this conversations with this black servant. She's also black. And then he's like, our people, they're suffering. And she's like, I'm not one of you. So you have this weird like kind of racial tension which they look at and then leave for 100 pages. Then you see them again and then they go away again. And then between this, Angelica is moving in a way that you can't really judge what she's going to do next. This woman goes very, very quickly from independent to soppily in love and crazy to like servile, not servile, but to like happily domesticated in a way that she said she would never be before. So yeah. if this was meant to be a book about like the power, not the power of women, but that showed women in a great light, is written by a woman, is um, kind of talking about like social inequalities and social um, relationships between people. It sort of started off very strongly and then took so many meandering turns for me. And then the mermaid ended up being not a, not important at all. He sells it in like you know the first hundred pages, and another mermaid turns up randomly. There's more plot device, and then the mermaid starts cursing people a bit. Yeah, and, well, uh, and mm. to sort of slow down a minute, like yeah, it it is you do think the mermaid is going to be the focus. And I suppose the mermaid is kind of what brings Angelica and Jonah together. But then, you don't. I never thought they were going to have this love story. I did not see that coming at all. Well, not, really. not, after, not after I started like getting into the story and realising that it wasn't, you know, the story yeah. I thought it was. Which yeah. is fine until suddenly it became one of three different stories. And I was very yeah. not disappointed as such because I did enjoy it. It's more the fact that I feel like it missed several hoops that I expected it to completely, you know, make really easily. Yeah, well, I think for me, uh, I think I enjoyed it more than you. No, yeah, I was um, less frustrated I wasn't, but, but I think that... So I read it over a couple of, period of a couple of weeks mm-hmm. um, and put it down for a bit to read another book, um, which was our book club book, so that sort of took priority. And I think that meant that the sort of sudden changes in character that you experienced mm-hmm. seemed less sudden to me. Absolutely. Um, which I think worked better. Um, and I also think it, I kind of read it in this like very engrossed way where I wasn't really being particularly critical. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of, it was like floating over me almost. Yeah, sure. Because um, when you raised these these points, I was like, oh yeah, I like 100% see what you mean. Yeah. But I wasn't particularly clued. I think there were bits I was like, this is super random. Yeah. And I definitely thought that it was like jumping around quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And I also thought Angelica's character was was hard to pin down but particularly the bits with the other as you said the other women who are working as prostitutes who have this sort of conflict that like is focused on and then they sort of forget about it for a bit and then isn't really resolved at the end and it's not that everyone thing has to have a resolution but um, it sort of feels as though it should have a purpose I feel like when you bring a character up you don't have to kill them or make them a happy ending but there's one who just disappears uh, after running away yeah kind of thing. and it's or, not really sure what you're supposed to think about yeah that. or eliza who is her maid angelica's maid servant yeah spends the whole of the first couple of you know couple of sections kind of trying to protect her it's seen and then eliza randomly becomes a board and stalks into angelica's house with mr hancock you know covered in makeup being like oh 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 this is lovely oh you really like done well for yourself but angelica is like fiercely then somehow fiercely proud yeah. of what she's accomplished and sees Eliza as having betrayed her or never been never been who she thought she was. And I'm like, no, she's not who I thought she was. <laughs> it was, I suppose, perhaps the author was trying to make a point about the constricting roles of women in the time and that if you fell into a certain you path, couldn't really escape, you yeah. couldn't really escape. And like, what other option was there for Eliza? Like, she was probably known for being Angelica's maid servant yeah. and she couldn't really suddenly go and work for like a respectable family. Yeah. And also, I suppose, the women who were who are running these establishments do seem to have a lot of power and influence, mm-hmm. which I guess you could interpret as like their way of exerting uh, dominance. Absolutely. But on the other hand, um, what was she called? Mrs. I can't remember her name now. But... Oh, mm. she was very like, she was a very like, um, Mrs. Umbridge, do- like Umbridge sort of character. Yeah. So, so Mrs. Umbridge, we'll just call her that. She is like, brutally murdered essentially by a mob yeah by a mob which definitely seemed to me like a 
not even a comeuppance, that's not the right word because I think the author isn't trying to say that, but like, it was almost like, oh, actually, she had all this power as a woman, was taken but away it's now been completely taken well, away from her. Well, so with that as well, is that like, no woman apart from Angelica and Suki, the um, niece of Mr. Hancock who lives with them mm. and acts like a little, little kind of servant slash, you know, you know, lady in training, reach any kind of happy ending. Um, and so it kind of feels like a weird backhanded compliment, I suppose, in that the women who were kind of held up for being independent, the ones, the ones who get married, it's so Belle Fortescue, the friend of Angelica, Angelica, and then Suki, who becomes a nice lady, yeah. um, actually the ones who meet any happy ending. It just feels, it feels, it, it got weirdly judgmental, mm. even though it was meant, even though these characters were obviously written in a way that maybe was meant to be empowering. Yeah, I mean, so the fact she was a courtesan, Immediately made me think of Moulin Rouge, and I was kind of picturing her as yeah, like Nicole Kidman, she wasn't like that at all. but she wasn't like that at all. But I think the book could have been more fun, and and I'm not saying that she shouldn't have, um, you know, shined a light on the real difficulties and traumas that these women would have experienced. But she definitely did, and I think that was very valid. But if she was trying to make the point that they were exerting their independence, she could have made that more of a kind, more of a, like, a fun, kind of interesting, like, look at, like, their relationships and... It wasn't really like that at all. Yeah. Because you, you also have yeah. this mermaid. I feel like we should talk about the mermaid. So yeah, sure. the first Which one? <laughs> both of them. So the first mermaid, did you think it was real in inverted commas? Um no, because it was obviously something put together by whatever peoples that the captain came across. Yeah. And the whole thing that that mermaid, the weird wizened one, is based in the discovery of a mermaid like that that's which is in, in the british museum, museum yeah that did end up being and that's how she together. got the idea from the book yeah. yeah which was like fine because i didn't i didn't expect it to be a, there to be a great reveal i liked the fact that it was kind of about this mass hysteria and this mass gossiping um within georgian society that could be brought by the supernatural like georgian society i mean uh, victorians are very moralistic and that's a different thing and people like to talk about that and i quite like how georgians were like there for a conspiracy and there for a supernatural yeah. thing like them like, like the kind of people I think who would believe in the mysticism of life because science and reason haven't reached them yet I was wholly down for that and then the mermaid disappeared and I was like oh I was enjoying the mermaid's effect on people and now it's all about these now it's all about the after effects of the mermaid but the mermaid seemingly changed nothing like the mermaid didn't bring any great sort of not social change but any kind of like Nothing happened. It was like a, it was like a like a like a firework that basically just like yeah. went out. And then in in the the second mermaid who appears much much later in the book after a good like two hundred mermaid free pages. It's like a real. Is is implied to be a real like siren esque. Yeah, the magical realism does very much come from nowhere because there's nothing else in the book that is of that ilk. Oh. Great use of the word ilk by both of us. Unless it was like this kind of like flavour for the supernatural the Georgians have. And then you randomly have these like in italic sections which are like strangely like metaphysical like <laughs> thoughts of the mermaid <laughs> what's happening yeah well because for quite a bit of this of this second mermaid bit i thought it was kind of a metaphor for like depression or of not being satisfied in of what you've got or of you know feeling a kind of sense of loss or like searching See, for something I thought we should just gone ape and have just been like get the crown of our mermaid now well, well, this is it. I think you're right like but the reason I thought that it wasn't real is because I just thought it hadn't been real up until that point and this sort of um second mermaid you never really see and it's kind of like a, a will of the wisp you know sort of floating in the air and a, a feeling a feeling of great sadness comes across and nostalgia and uh, you know why sailors would jump to their death really beautifully written like i was you know i felt like i could i was there with well sort of in terms of hearing these you know strange noises and feeling yeah, the sensation no, no hit on that, but, but but in terms of like what it actually meant for the plot it was very random well because randomly you know mr hancock gets this mermaid and starts to like draw away from his wife and angelica by this point has like become happy very out of character in her, you know, in her life of mist with Jonah and is like helping to raise Suki and that kind of thing. And she's and, pregnant as well. Yeah, and then she's pregnant, but they're not pregnant. And the mermaid kind of like curses people. And Angelica starts to get sad in, you know, this big new house they have together in a position and starts to wonder who she really is. And she starts being like, I'm Angelica Neal, I'm Angelica Hancock, who am I? And then, round Mr. Hancock kind of looks at her and goes, 
I've been neglecting you, haven't I? And she goes, yeah, why? And he's like, oh, I've got a mermaid in the back. And she's like, oh, okay. And then they're like, we must destroy the mermaids. Then they, and it's just like... And that is then what happens. And then they all live happily ever after. And so it's basically... Have you ever seen the film Australia? I showed yeah, it to you, right? Yeah, I I've love the it. film Australia. But the problem with Australia is it feels like it's about three films tacked together because, you know, Baz Luhrmann gets to the end of one, resolves one story for the characters. And then a whole new one begins with the start of a war. Mm. So same same with me. But this for me, it felt like it was three separate stories in different volumes, then tacked together, and nobody thought to say to her like, "There's no continuity," and all of the themes we're trying to weave through just keep kind of being picked apart. But I felt no resolution apart from the fact that like the mermaid, the, you know, the the story of the mermaid was now finished because the supernatural and. It just really got to me in the end because I felt that she was trying to pick up all these things and throw, juggle these balls and just kept like, you know, dropping one and then leaving it. Mm. And in the end, it really felt to me that the characters I really cared about, which were Angelica and Jonah and Suki, who I thought were strong, interesting characters. Definitely. They had no, like, she could have honestly cut, she could have cut a good, good amount of that book and really rewritten Angelica to go through this transformation. I just... It was just so, it just felt so ham-handed a lot of the time amongst this beautiful writing. And I felt that, this is one problem I have with the publishing industry that we were discussing earlier, actually, me and Flan, that like, it might sound great, it might look great, it might smell great, but if you look inside and find there are problems and then you start to whack it off to prize lists, you know, that makes me really mad because mm. I got an, I was advertised this book in a way that I gave a lot of my time to it and really expected to enjoy it and then didn't and felt, I don't know, it's like sitting through a three-hour film and being like, half of that was boring. Like, yeah. I hate that, you know? Which, this is why it bugged me more than you, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think perhaps I had, I don't know, I think, I, I completely see all those flaws and I definitely felt them too, it, you know, but I think I just thought her writing is really, really beautiful. It is. I and that, I'll definitely say that she's a very, very, very accomplished writer, yeah. but she's not, she's not, she's not an accomplished author yet because she might write well, but there were a lot of problems in her writing that even I, as, okay, fine, I'm a relative publishing professional, I've done a degree in it, but I have no experience in editorial mm. work. You know, I only have what I know. As, And for me, I was there being like, there are so many ways they could have just fixed this, and they just didn't. And I'm like, I know the publishing industry very well, and I know that actually it's very competitive. So the fact that this, this got through in a way that, other books on the prizes it's on had to work much harder to do. It kind of bugs me a bit. Yeah, I think it would be very interesting to see what her follow-up is. And mm, definitely. Um, I think it's it's for me the the thing I had the most issue with was like the probably the the random change of tones, mm. uh, like less than the characters. Although I do see I do see those issues because I found that I didn't quite know what book I was reading. I didn't really mind, because I just kind of got taken around down for the ride. So I thought I but, did, and I didn't. <laughs> but I think it, it was quite unusual. And, and actually, to compare it to the Essex Serpent, which is sort of similar mm. in that, like, you don't really know if the serpent is real or not, like, mm. in terms of that plot line. That's much more well-handled. But I, I agree. I think it is more well-handled. And also, the serpent is 100% a focus from the beginning. Well, because it's about the way the serpent... You don't see it, really, No. But it's the way that it affects people. And, and the hysteria the way, it causes. And the whether it's a metaphor for depression, whether it's really a serpent... Um, whether it's honestly just a figment of people's imagination, it plays on people's minds and it influences the way they... And also it engages, it makes the characters meet and stuff. So yeah. if they'd been like the story of Jonah Hancock, I would have been like, oh, okay. But the way they did it was very lyrical. The title's very nice, but it's nothing to do with Yeah, and of course, Mrs. Hancock is Angelica. But I only realised that, like, really late in the game. See, for a while I thought that, like, maybe Mrs. Hancock was going to be his, like dead wife who was like manifesting her manifesting self as a mermaid yeah but not in that it's more the fact that like what her the impression she left on his life and oh, like okay. how it improved yeah. his choices but this is the problem like it wasn't as good as the Essex Serpent Sarah Perry isn't I was just saying this to Flan actually before we started that I'd see different authors and writers that there are people like Jane Austen or uh, or F F F. Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitzgerald or Sarah Perry, who are accomplished authors who understand that the writing and the plot and the pacing and the focus and the thematic use of themes. Um, Kate Chopin, for example, as well. She wrote, I read The Awakening, loved it. I think that 
it's very sophisticated because there is an art to writing you can't just like be a scientist on the regs you know and the same thing with author for me so I feel like I would class Imogen Harris Gower as like an amateurish writer still Sarah Perry has or like Sarah Waters they're accomplished mm. authors um that are great at their at their trade but you don't have to be an accomplished author to get a book published absolutely you don't yeah and but to also be very successful i guess absolutely you don't and that's the great thing about the publishing industry and the fact that it can tailor it can it can appeal to lots of different people but to play her off as a different sarah, sarah perry i was like the great sarah perry no because but it just wasn't what i thought it would be i think that's also something that's maybe just it's not just it's not unique to the publishing in- industry it, you know we also do it with films we do it with actors we do it with musicians we do it with like places to go or places to visit of things being like the next something mm. it's like you always have to compare something to something that's come before yeah. and, and that can yeah. sometimes be to its detriment I, I think in every profession you know there is there are people like Bob Dylan Leonard Cohen I'll add to this, to this who are very accomplished and actually like talented and they are geniuses in their field because they just have they have the momentum for mm. it and they have the skill you can learn it but I think sometimes you can't as well um, I'm still trying to work out if I have that for writing or not but well, well this is one of the things that I when we were having this discussion is it like yeah it, it sort of makes you think because you're like oh, i'm being like hugely critical but actually it must be really really hard to have that spark that makes something like an actual book because you think about how many books you and i read mm. and one of the things i've been finding with goodreads in terms of rating them is it's actually really difficult mm. because there's yeah, lots of stars. yeah and there's lots of books that i like like a lot but it's not going to be like my new favorite book that i'm going to read all the time yeah. you know and how does something get to that point so for me that's the problem is that there are lots of people out there with great ideas but it doesn't really mean that they have the spark to be a genius at, at their field you don't have to be but i would expect people on prize lists like the ones that we're seeing with you know colleagues in the prize list who are actually very 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 good to maybe be better but again this is human judgment we're faulting here you know like i can't yeah know. and this is also our personal opinions as well um and as you can see, like, we diverge slightly on them anyway. Mm. So, yeah, I, I suppose reading, and I suppose this is almost a problem with, like, prizes in general, is it's so subjective. You know, yeah, how like, do you choose something's better than something else? Yeah, trendiness has a huge role to play, as does who the author is, are they respectable, well, that kind of thing. Also, to go back to the mermaid theme... Um, it, mermaids are in this year. Yeah, mermaids are in, which is a weird thing to say because like they're probably something that's always been have, part of society. You have but the uh, the gloaming by Christy Logan. Um, you're going to have the surface break by Louise O'Neill, which is like a feminist reimagining of um, Little Mermaid. The hands Christian Anderson, not this new one. So, yeah, there was yeah. another one I was reading about earlier today as well, which was like a sort of almost Bridget Jones, but the woman falls in love with a mermaid. Oh, I have heard of this. Yeah. Rings a bell. So, and of um, course, The Shape of Water, the film, was so successful. So, mermaid, you know, mermaids and super, the supernatural water creature, you know, they're popular right now. So, publishers go where the money is. Of course they do. But it's just, it's just frustrating to be particularly duped <laughs> this time around, mm. which is fine. Like, I, I, um, I, I read several, two other books recently, which were just as had similar problems. I read The Watchmaker for Ligri Street, as yeah. I said, which came through my book subscription. Um, similar problems, great concept, um, really interesting, really nice writing, but the plot was just, the, the plot and pacing was a bit abysmal. Um, but I didn't mind, because I was like, well, you know, it's just a book that I got sent and I'm enjoying it, chill. So, yeah, I guess what you're saying is maybe the expectations that you had of this book was were, like, high, and that was partly because of how it was marketed to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we will, you know, let you know what books we're reading next week. Um, oh, Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, please let us know if you have read um, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock what you or about it, if yeah. you're planning to read it, um, you know, your thoughts on any other book book prize lists and, you know, what you think about that. Yeah, it's, great lot, yeah, it's, it's a great thing. There's a lot of different stuff coming out. I feel like every day I'm updating a new one on my. Um, and The Man Booker's got, like, you know, their big uh, nostalgic 50th anniversary this year. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the book world. And this is not to trash the way publishers work in any way because I think they're doing a great job in a very difficult time period yeah and i think it was also really interesting that uh you know we should go back to the beginning of like how just like beautifully packaged this book is and that must be a way of getting people to buy books in a time where you know people are perhaps like easily feel they can download things etc and it made them money so i mean i just don't i just uh, i just want to write to the editor and be like what the hell were you thinking but the problem with being in publishing as well which i aim to be 
uh, I have a degree in it and everything, is that um, the veneer is kind of torn away. So, you know, there are things that I notice that other people don't mind. But overall, ah, overall, hopefully Imogen Hermes Gower will write a better book next time. <laughs> I'm sure she will. She's very talented. Yeah, I'm excited to see what she does. And I definitely think it's, um, it was a debut that left me excited for like her future as opposed to being like oh well i never read anything about her again or anything like that yeah so, definitely yeah so i mean it's just that's just sad for her that i read the uh, song of achilles so recently because that's blown my mind i just was like don't talk about it again <laughs> all right so we will now move on so this saturday was Helena's favourite night of the, the year. The day that my favourite show was aired, the Eurovision Song Contest 2018, which is held in Lisbon, Portugal, where we recently went. Um, and it was great. We had a party here, which uh, ended up in uh, a bit of madness, but the show itself was equally mad. So we have some thoughts that we're going to like share yeah, on Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm sure you all know what the Eurovision Song Contest is, but it is a particularly random event uh, whereby <laughs> you have all these uh, different countries who... not always in Europe as well no no we had Australia this year for the first time yep yep and um, Israel not part of Europe either no no so it's it's you know it's quite welcoming in that sense um, and people they each country will uh, submit a song and they'll have a singer perform that yep. song yep um, and they generally songs that haven't really been heard before like there are, on the whole yeah there aren't there aren't any rules for, so it's a big song contest held in whoever whoever whoever, time, yeah, yeah. whoever won the last year's country which is annoying for that annoying for them sometimes because they have to put up or fork out all this money to like put on a huge power also Eurovision known for technological advancement like their concert's always known for literally being like technologically very 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 yeah. like heavy and interesting with pyrotechnics etc so it costs a bit of money um where essentially, yeah, 43 European countries compete for the crown of Eurovision. And it's not like, yeah, it's not in any way like, um, a, it is a big deal, but it's just like... I think the most famous thing to have come out of Eurovision is ABBA. Or Celine Dion, but she was already famous. Yeah, ABBA, it was like where they got started, wasn't it? Oh, uh, um, yeah. And that's the thing, there are no rules about not being an amateur. Like, Blue have performed for us before, the band Blue. You might not know who they are, but they are a British <laughs> brand called Blue. There's four of them. Um, and, like, the German one from a couple of years ago, uh, Lila or Leah, whatever her name was, she was genuinely, like, a German pop star. So, like, you don't have to be an amateur. Like, Beyonce could do it if she wanted to, which can't, means you get this weird mishmash of, like, so- random songs, stupid songs, songs that are really popular in their home country by artists who are really, really popular. But generally, you never really know who they are. No. And so you have this, like, 20, when the final comes along, you have the 20-odd, 26-odd songs that you watch, and you're like, wow, this is all basically nuts. And this year was no exception for the nuts. No, no, it wasn't. So I think most people probably watch Eurovision with like a glass of wine or their drink of choice. Some friends. Friends. Um, Food. And a kind of, you know, no one takes it seriously, you know. So you're kind of in quite a jovial mood while you watch it. Yeah. Um, and this year was no exception. I mean, I can't really say that there was one like standout for me. Oh, so there aren't any highlights you particularly remember seeing. I don't know, not really. It was I, difficult because we were in we were in this in this basement with my TV. I think about 15, 20 people. Yeah, we were all you know chatting, having a good time. So you it, it does mean you miss stuff, but like ever so often, Helena, who takes it very seriously, would turn around and be like, "Shh, shh," and then no one would a baby. Um, but I mean, I think there was some there was some memorably wacky songs, but now they've all kind of blurred together for me a bit. Yeah. So maybe I should like take it over to the Eurovision Expo. Which is pee. Well, you know, from a very newsy perspective, obviously Israel and Cyprus were kind of tipped to win. It wasn't clear in the bookie kind of like runnings if Israel, who had the song called Toy, sung by Netta, who's a very like quirky looking woman who sang a quirky song, mm. or Cyprus, which is like a, you know, a girl's anthem with Fuego by a woman who I can't remember the name of, but she's very beautiful with like long liony type hair and it's like a big Beyonce style song so those two are kind of tipped to win and in the end Israel won with Netta won with Israel Netta won with yeah. Toy not a huge surprise but what was a surprise was some other performances I thought really stood out to me like Moldova who did who knows what Moldova is who did a really interesting like uh, Vafar Americano kind of style jazzy pop song um, where they they were behind this like screen that opened oh, yeah, up in different ways yeah, was... and it was like 
they would be singing and then like things would be happening behind the screen and you know those stacking dolls you can play where you stack their outfits differently and they were doing it so like one screen would open another screen would open next to it and be two different people there and they would like make it in one person together and like anyways it was very quirky it was very eye-catching yeah interestingly staged and And, like there were like six people in three pairs dressed the same so they could have someone singing and have their counterpart behind them so it kind of seemed like there was like like doll mirror stuff going on that was cool um there was also two people who brought their spouses or significant others on stage one of them to sing to them romantically yeah there was one woman in like a really lovely like pale dress chiffony dress who like sang a weird ballad do not bring ballads to eurovision if any eurovision people are listening do not do that we don't have any time for ballads at eurovision anyway and she came on sang and then randomly her husband walked on and was like hello dear (laughs) like the last like Two, well, not, no, like the last like maybe thirty seconds of the song, and it was like, and okay, we get it. So we're like, is he, is he like gonna sing now? No, and obviously he didn't. So that was weird. It yeah. was just like, don't leave a relationship all out of Eurovision, please. And then. Um, it was Spain. The couple who came out to sing for Spain were like holding each other and smiling, and it was obviously like couples karaoke. And then we learned they'd only been together three months. And it was like, what are you doing? It's yeah, just not was, your date night. That was awkward. It felt like you were kind of crashing like that intimate moment. This is not your date night. Ugh. Anyway, there were some great things. There was um, the F- Finland came as like a weird rock band. You know, remember the guy who was yeah. like Jamie Fraser with the Egyptian? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was. They were there. Um, we they had different. Yeah, we had. I mean, Suri again brought a ballad. It was boring. Her, she got stage invaded. Um, someone grabbed the mic. Blah blah blah. That was probably the. That was know, quite dramatic. Yeah, uh, we got no sympathy votes for that. Um, and there were some other performances too. Like the German guy sang about his dead father, like "You Left Me Alone" kind of thing. There was a Czech guy who was like Justin Bieber mixed with Tom Fletcher, who did the backpack dance. Oh yeah. And yeah. it was like la 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 spaghetti or something. Um, what else was there that was interesting? <laughs> Austria were boring, in my opinion. So Austria. Uh, in some people's minds, controversially, won the jury vote. See, I have a problem with this too, definitely. So the performance is all over, and you're like, fine. And they used to do it that everybody, uh, your only votes you get were national votes, so public votes. But then it gets really political because you vote for your neighbours or your friends and that kind of thing. So all of the Eastern Bloc would vote for each other and all of the Baltics would. So that was, then they got the jury, then they halved it with the jury. So they got national juries to watch the performances, rate... And then give their points out. It was meant to help it be more like musically inclined as well. Yeah. But there is a balance there. Like Eurovision for me is 75% about show and 25% about the how good the song is, in my mm. opinion. And yet, what happened this year, which doesn't happen most years, this year was really, truly bad, that the audience vote and the jury vote really were flipped depending on... Oh, well, it was totally different. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the jury were voting for Austria... Um, Sweden, who had a great butt, and that was all he had to give to the show. Um, Germany, uh, France, I barely remember who France was. These weird ballads sung by weird men that were maybe musically the best. I, mean, I heard people commenting saying that Austria was the best musically and the best male vocals, and I'm like, bull, I don't remember Austria at all. I'm not interested it was in. It's a different way of voting as opposed to voting for the overall performance. Yeah, and then it's meant to help negate like political voting or voting for stupid things, like, you know, if a drag act not a drag act if the crazy silver Ukraine act like that didn't win because you know the Jew no no that didn't win because Finland won with the equally weird one so it helped stop the weird stuff the really weird stuff win just by dint of being odd um but equally what it does mean is that the fun stuff that I think had real Eurovision heart got like ignored like as much as Alexander Reback is a bit of a Eurovision hack now I do love him I do think his song for Norway was really fun um, like Cyprus should have done better I think Moldova should have done better it's one of those things where like a lot of the strange boring ballads that you know the Guardian kind of reported on as being very beige mm. got the jury vote and I swear well, it just made me annoyed I think if you're going to do a ballad you would do it like Conchita Worst where she did the Rise Like a Phoenix yeah. which was like a proper like James Bond you yeah know, absolutely and she ballad. was also you know she's a drag act uh, she's pretty much a, a real icon and she's not some random dude from like Austria seeing a song in a mixed medium leather shirt I'm like I don't know the jury were absolutely just off their rocker but this I year Israel winning their song was definitely yeah Eurovision friendly and I like that yeah. yeah I mean it was totally mad I really didn't know what was happening also I realised you know she had like waving cats in the background yeah um, and someone pointed out to me, uh, I saw a little article headline, I didn't really absolutely have time to read it, but 
I saw an article headline being like cultural appropriation, and I was like, actually, it was a bit weird that she had waving cats in the background. Like, why? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it. That I, I saw that controversy as well. I didn't really kind of dive into it, but yeah, I'm too I, tired of cultural appropriation right I think, now. Um, you know, like, I guess it was. I guess there were quite a lot of different conflicting themes going on in that song because people were saying it was a song. Um, you know, it was supposed to be like a kind of feminist Power, anthem, yeah. um, but then also it had this. It, it did have a lot going on in the set, which was maybe more what you were focusing on than the lyrics. And the chicken dance and stuff. Yeah, so... Overall... I don't quite know what the message was. But. Yeah. Overall, I would say it was... The, also, the presenters just were half as funny as... Honestly, we see how Portugal, um, they came, like, dead last. And Graham Norton was like, yeah, they don't want to host this again. So they said yeah. a terrible <laughs> act. Ooh, and we have to mention Ryan O'Shaughnessy for Ireland, who had a gay dance couple in the background, which was the cutest thing actually ever yeah yeah and that was like they were saying it was kind of a first for europe yeah right which is camp as it is really surprising (laughs) um oh oh and there was um the crazy vampire guy at the beginning from albania who like set his stairs on fire and was wearing different colored contacts and was like greasy gray hair like child of snape kind of thing yeah yeah he wasn't very happy no that was weird too see that was really that was classic for me i feel like the performances themselves were great great show hosts were terrible um, the voting was terrible too and absolutely annoyed me because in the end it wasn't that exciting because all the weird stuff all the boring stuff kept winning so I was a bit like mm. oh do you remember that one that was like the guy who was bald and had a beard and he had three women that he was singing with who kept he kept like sort of like standing behind creepy yeah, yeah. that was also weird oh god you're original I really enjoyed it I really did but next year I think I'm going to have a quiet Helena watching time where I listen to all the commentary because I missed a lot of Graham Norton yeah Graham which is said. too bad because speaking of Graham Norton I went to the Graham Norton show oh of course what a great seek what a seek <laughs>
who I didn't know who she was. But then um, it was funny because she told stories about people coming up to her and approaching her because some of her music is used in 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh, so that's pretty cool. So like, she's obviously one of those people that actually has like, a, you know, loads of like really classic hits, but um, it's probably just a bit before our time. So um, yeah, they were a fun, fun bunch and it was a cool experience. So I definitely would recommend anyone who... And you can also do it for other shows uh, along those lines, like Loose Women and things like that. You can go, like, find yeah. tickets for. So, yeah. We will do that in the future. Yeah. I will look forward to watching it. I haven't watched it yet. I really mean... I always mean to watch the Graham Norton show because I know it's really funny and interesting. I just never get around to it. I always watch it when I'm kind of, like, doing something else. Like, yeah. Or I would either watch it, like, on a Sunday yeah. if I've had, like... If I've been out the night before and I'm, like, you know, just chilling in my room kind of thing, then I would watch it. Or, um, you know, when I'm doing, like, ironing or definitely, like, a Sunday kind of chores, like, chilling yeah, day. Yeah, that's so true. Show, in my opinion. Um, but, yeah, so that was really cool. Um, I've been reading Heartburn by Nora Ephron. Oh, yeah. Uh, for the first time, uh, which was something that, I mean, Nora Ephron, she wrote when Hallie, Harry Met Sally, um, when Sleepless in Seattle, you mm. know, she's, like, a prolific... Uh, rom-com like script writer of the 90s and then she was also a journalist and she wrote um this book amongst others and it's based on the breakdown of her marriage uh but it's very humorous and it's uh, also includes lots of recipes which is kind of fun like Ooh, that's really recipes. cool so i'm really enjoying it it's got a kind of a uh, very witty like wry like uh tone to it Mm. one thing that I have noticed is like there's some bits that are definitely have dated and that like it was written in the 80s and there's some like kind of well, really really kind of almost racist you know not even um. almost like definitely racist sort of oh, undertones no. or comments uh, which I, I guess was just you know more widely used uh, used at the time yeah like yeah it's, so that's something it's one of those things that you're reading it and you're like whoa that's a bit jarring I'm not, not to say that I don't know that much about her I haven't like kind of really researched it but I think you know she's obviously like a liberal uh, character and everything but it's just that at that time people yeah potentially thought it was okay yeah different sort of uh, boundaries of those sorts of yeah. things but yeah that's a bit jarring um but suddenly it's an interesting read how about you Helena? me well yeah I- I've been kind of um, torching my way through a bunch of books recently um, currently I'm reading I'm continuing on with Robin Hobb who's a fantasy author a la kind of a G.R.R. Martin but a bit less gruesome and a bit more like uh, paced slowly paced right. um, and more focused kind of storylines so it's a it's the second of a series um, which started with Assassin's Apprentice his first book following this young man Fitz mm-hmm. and it just continues through his life at the minute I think he's about 15 right now and I'm enjoying it it's very much a saga Things happen really slowly because it's all based in like the politics and the day to day life of like living in. He's a bastard in the royal family, um, and his father was the king in waiting, but then he had to abdicate because they found out he had a bastard. So he left and then he died. So now he's living in this like kind of vaguely poisonous court where the, the next king in waiting, who is his uncle Verity, is kind to him, but the other uncle Regal like, hates him and there's all this politics between Regal and Verity and there's this like raiders attacking the kingdom and there's like it's very actually interesting if you consider like government versus the people and how a government tries to hold on to power in this medieval setting actually which I it's very 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 well handled it's a bit slow I will say um, but it is politically it's one of the most like sophisticated medi- uh, fantasy books and storylines I've ever read so I'd recommend her um, if you like that kind of thing. If you don't, you know you won't. So mm-hmm. I would say not go for that. I've also read The Watchmaker of Filigree Street by, by Natasha Pulley. I might have mentioned last episode. Yeah, I, mean, I think you did briefly um, Which took a turn that I did not expect. I won't spoil it for you, but it really, really did. Um, I liked it, but it kind of t- took me a bit blind a bit. And I had to sort of like go back and reread a bit of it to see. I was like, oh, that's what this book's about. Happened to me again with Golden Hill, the next book I read after that where it suddenly became very clear right near the very end what the book was trying to say and I was like oh I really miss I didn't miss it but I feel like I enjoyed the book for a different reason and then realised I missed or didn't see a lot of this undertone stuff which may I think may have been a bit too vague for me to really see but I really enjoyed those two books as well they came through my book subscription service so I try and keep up with it as much as possible but I'm back on Robin Hobb now I'm going to read Cersei soon I'm saving Cersei by my favourite one of my favourite authors, Madeline Miller, because I really don't want to like I don't want to like give it up too soon. Um 
I've recently, oh, I'm really, I'm on a real book, book hit right now. Um, I'm doing a lot of writing as well. And then I'm actually really excited because uh, BTS, my favourite K-pop band, Bang Tan Son Yanda in Korean, uh, are releasing their new album on Friday, which is going to be great. I've actually found out it's an actual studio album. So it's like, it's like, you know, a full album of new music. And the last time they did that was actually about two years ago. And they released small little EPs in between. So that's going to be really great. I'm really excited for that. Perfect in time for my trip to Japan. Yeah. So it's going to be great with two of my very good friends who are BTS fans too. So it's be perfect. And they're also going to, they're touring to the UK in October. So I'm going to have to fight someone for tickets for that. So I'm also really looking forward to that. But I think in the next couple of weeks, it's going to be traveling, reading and being exhausted, I think, for me. Well, you'll have to fill in the listeners. Oh, I will. Uh, when you've turned. Well, and yeah. And on that point, um, you can follow us on, at Love's Labour's Watched. You can follow me and Francesca as well on Twitter. Our links are all on our Twitter page. Yeah, yeah. Um, me for updates about Japan. Francesca for just general journalism and great content. Um, and we also have a Gmail, uh, Love's Labour's Watch at gmail.com and Instagram, which is Love's Labour's Watch. You can follow us and talk to us on all of those social media platforms. Yeah, so we look forward to hearing from you and we'll let you know what we're going to talk about next. So it'll, it'll be uh, yeah. out there soon. It's TBC yeah. for now. But anyway, right. bye, bye guys. Bye. <laughs>